There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Midpoint. My guest today is the wonderful Matt Lucas from George Dawes, the baby with the scores and shooting stars with Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer to Little Britain and Come Fly With Me alongside David Williams to Doctor Who and now, of course, the host of Great British Bake Off. Lucas is pretty much a national treasure. Do you like podcasts? I don't do very many of them. There's a lot of them, isn't there? Yes, it's it's rather busy out there. Yeah. <laughs> On the podcast highway. I'm really, really, really happy that you're doing this one, though. Thank you so much. And um, Thank you. at 48, you are gladly in the midlife kind of age bracket. And I say gladly because if we don't get older, we're not here, right? So it's okay getting older. Or do you do you have a different attitude to ageing? No, I'm all right with it. It's fine. Yeah. You know, some things get harder, but a lot of things get easier, I think. What's easier? I think in a nice way, not worrying so much about what other people think, you know, not trying to constantly appease people. And also, just the other things, the longer you're around, the more experience you have, the more you learn. So you just think, you see the signs. You're less likely to make the same mistakes again, I guess, because you've already made them. Well, I have. I was going to say, you don't seem to have made too many mistakes. Oh, well, just in general, just things like um, putting too much water in the pot noodle. <laughs> the big things. Yeah. The, the really that, big things. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're uh, obviously but looking great. And you, you talked Thank recently you. about losing weight and, and kind of getting yourself in shape. Was the midlife anything to do with that? Was, kind of a, was it an ageing thing where you thought, right, I'm going to be 50 in a couple of years' time. I'm going to get myself into the kind of shape I need to be in for my second half? Well, it's really, I'm 48. My dad died when he was 52, very suddenly. Um, his dad died, I think, at 56. So I was looking at the law of averages here and I was very big and I was getting bigger in the pandemic, actually. Sort of, you know, not being very active, not really going out, not seeing people, just eating a lot of roast potatoes. I mean, I can't tell you how many roast potatoes I ate. I think if you went into your supermarket, you know, there's a lot of food shortages. If yeah. you went into your supermarket and you couldn't find potatoes, because people found things hard to get hold of, that was me. I have to own up to that. No matter where you were in the world, that was me. <laughs> but that that did spawn a potato song. So that's... Well, we did do it. Yeah, we did do it. I did the baked potato song, but I was just, I was eating so many roast potatoes. There was nothing else to do. I was just at home. I had my housemate. Well, he lives with his girlfriend now, but we were living together. Um, I had a friend who moved in to help me look after my dogs, both of which passed away just before the pandemic. And, oh. um, but my housemate stayed at my house. He, he stayed there just because it was nice to keep each other company really. And, um, you know, work stopped and everything. So he stayed for a bit. But he stayed really fit because he's a personal trainer. So he was eating the roast potatoes, but he was also, you know, going and doing huge fitness routines. I was not. 
And I actually got to the point, I was eating so many roast potatoes, Gabby, that I started making them into different shapes just to give myself something to do. Did that assuage the guilt a bit? Did it make you feel No, less not at all. No, 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 no. no, no. It's so, I mean, I literally, I actually ordered an apple corer off Amazon and I started coring potatoes just to see how differently they might roast. I mean, that is literally, that's, so then what I do is I'd have a, a roast potato with a massive hole in the middle, almost like a sort of donut roast potato. And then, you know, the actual thing that, that comes out of the core, yeah. you know, if, you, if you stick it in a potato yeah. or an apple, I was also cooking those. So I was cooking cylinders of potato as well. So think about that. I was so big, I couldn't really fit on screen anymore. Are you completely off potatoes now, by the way? No, As, I love them. No, nothing's no. changed. I just don't eat as many. But the, the thing is that if you're big, and by the way, I've still got a proper tummy. I've still got a tummy. I'm not, I'm not skinny by any means. I've just, I've just lost some. I think I've gone from like maybe a double XL. Sometimes I was triple XL. Double XL down to a medium now, I think. Although sometimes medium's big on me and sometimes it's small on me. So, mm. um, and do you feel better when you wake up in the morning? Have you got more I energy? I do feel a bit better. I feel a bit just relieved. Because the thing is, I don't do any drugs and I don't smoke and I hardly ever drink. So it's just the food, really. But you know what? I do. I just don't eat as much. But I still, I eat sweets still. love sweets. And what about exercise? I walk. I like to walk. I live not far from a canal and I love when the weather's nice going for long walks by the canal, either with a friend or on my own. Long walks, sometimes I put the music on, on my earphones. But actually, the, it's a bit of a problem because where I walk, there's a lot of cyclists. And um, if you have your listening to your music, then, uh, you know, you're blocking the cyclists. Do you have to be a responsible citizen, Gabby? Yeah, it's a bit like walking in front of an electric car, you know, when you can't hear it. Can't hear them, can you? No, you can't. You live with a personal trainer. Does the thought of a burpee not make you feel quite excited? It's terrible. We did do some exercise sessions sometimes, but... Um, I think I'm naturally predisposed to being horizontal. I'm just one of those horizontal people. You know, I just rather enjoy it. But you're industrious with work, aren't you? I try to be. Like today I've got a full day of um, talking to you, I'm talking to some other people. But yesterday I did 14 hours in the studio um, filming something. And um, listen, life is short, you know. And not only is life short, but I think our period where anybody wants to see us or hear us is also not that long. You know, you have peaks and troughs in your career. So at the moment, it feels like, you know, people want to hire me. So I might as well sort of roll with that because you get periods where it's really quiet. Really? Oh, yeah. It doesn't seem like that in your career when you look back. It feels like it's been a continuum. What would you say was the quiet period? Where did you start to doubt maybe that this was? No, I didn't doubt. I didn't. Well, I had a period much earlier in my career. I had a period where it was around 2000 and me and David had written Little Britain as a TV script and it had got rejected. And um, we couldn't get in the door at BBC Two. And, you know, back then it was kind of it. It was like, well, our sort of comedy wasn't going to be on ITV. So it was either going to be BBC Two or Channel Four. That was it, really. And we just couldn't quite crack it. We were doing stuff on cable. There was a channel called UK Play. But we couldn't seem to get onto terrestrial television. I'd done things like Shooting Stars, but me and David as a double act. And, and mm. that was tough for us because we thought we were worthy of it. And um, what happens is you, you know, every time someone else gets a show on TV, one of your peers, you're happy for them. But you also think that's one 
chance I've missed now. And I can look back at it now and go, yeah, we had to wait our turn. I mean, me and David started writing together in 1994 and we didn't do the TV pilot of Little Britain until 2002 and it didn't air. I mean, the first series of Little Britain on TV was 2003. So you can look back now and say, well, thank goodness we had those nine years actually, because even though we wanted to be on TV before that, doing a six-part, half-hour sketch show, we needed those nine years to make something as impactful as we made. But there was this period, I remember, around about 2000, which was just before we did the... So we wrote Little Britain as a TV script, and it got rejected. And then I bumped into an old school friend in the street. We'd been very close, and we'd lost touch, a guy called Ashley Blaker. But Ashley had just joined BBC Radio as a producer, and he said he was looking for comedy shows. And did I have anything? And so me and David discussed doing Little Britain as a radio show. Then really we thought of it, if we do it on radio and we get it right, maybe that'll increase our chances of doing it on TV. Around that time also, me and David had developed a television show with a production company. We'd had this idea. We'd done the idea in sketch form on cable television and a big, big production company came to us and said, we'd love to develop that as a, something for terrestrial television, a kind of six half hours sitcom. And so we developed that with them and the show got commissioned. But what we learned was that nobody at any stage had mentioned our involvement to the broadcaster. So the commission had happened without us as writers or <laughs> stars. So the show got made without us. And um, I felt it was really outrageous what they'd done. And I said, well, you can go and make the show, but I'm not signing a document that endorses what you're doing. And then I was told by my then agent, if you don't sign this document, I can't guarantee you'll ever work again. So me and David had had this huge disappointment with that because it was a really good idea. And that should have been our first show. And it went on television, you know. So that was very humiliating for us and very upsetting. And that actually caused some tension between me and David. We were united on our kind of sense of um, crushing disappointment that we'd been duped out of this show. But it made us bicker. You know, it was stressful. We felt we were worthy of this place on terrestrial TV. And we were doing, we were making shows on cable TV, but it, we just, we felt like we were the warm-up act. And so around that time, I was asked to audition for a part in a play. And it was a production of Troilus and Cressida by the Oxford Stage Company, directed by Dominic Dromgoul. And um, it wasn't a successful production. It's a really difficult Shakespeare play anyway, and I'd never done Shakespeare before. And it was booked into these huge theatres, so we were playing like a two and a half thousand seater theatre, sometimes to about 25 people, literally. Oh, God. And at the end of that run, after about 10 weeks, we, we did the run and we actually finished doing three weeks at the Old Vic Theatre in London. And that should have been a triumphant end, but we got absolutely destroyed by the critics. And that felt very humiliating. And I just thought, oh, you know, Shooting Stars had finished. Mm. Me and David couldn't get anything on BBC Two, which is where we wanted to be. And it just felt like, well, maybe, maybe that's it. And um, I think me and David had some kind of chat the night before the Little Britain radio pilot where we just sort of said, this was our last thing we were going to do. Um, but then we went and did that pilot in front of the audience and the audience absolutely got behind it. And then I thought, oh, I think we're onto something here. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that nine years as well is why you're still here today because you've got a solid 
foundations to your career. It wasn't built on a on a lucky kind of appearance on some, you know, reality show. Or... Well, no, well, there was a huge amount of luck involved. In... There's always luck, but you had all that toil over there. I had years. a lot of toil, but actually I started doing stand-up when I was 18. And um, after five weeks of doing open spots, I'd probably only done three or four. I was performing in this evening for new acts downstairs at a pub in Belsize Park and Bob Mortimer was in the audience. And I was an enormous Reeves and Mortimer fan. And, and he came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I'd like to help you get work or work with you in some way. And I was 18 and I'd only been doing this five weeks. I wasn't getting paid yet or anything. And so that was lucky. That was lucky. Then not, I don't think anything could have been luckier. And, and, then, and then he started talking about me publicly in interviews and things like that. That's like doing your industry work experience with two of the greats, isn't it? Working up close and personal with those two. To me, it was like, you know, just picking up a guitar and starting to strum and Lennon and McCartney saying, you're good. Do you want to join our band? I mean, that's how it felt to me. I couldn't believe it. I was living this double life. I was, uh, I'd said to my mum, because you see, I had a place at Bristol University waiting for me, but I said to my mum, I'd like to take a year off. And I want to do stand-up comedy. And she said, well, that's fine. But, you know, my mum had three jobs. It was just me and my mum living together. She had three jobs. So she said, well, you need to also bring some money into the house. You can't just... If you're going away on your year off to Thailand, like a lot of people would or something like that, then fine. But if you're going to be here at the house, you've got to... You can't just do comedy. You've got to have a job. She she didn't see the two as the same thing. Um, And so I got a job working as assistant manager in the shop at Chelsea Football Club. So I would do that job in the day, even though I'm a massive Arsenal fan. I would do that (laughs) job in the day. And then in the evening, I'd go to far-flung places and gig. And it really tested my desire because for a start, I worked long hours at the shop. I often didn't get away from there till 6, 6.30. And the gigs would be all over. And so any money I had that I was earning from the shop, I would be spending on bus fares, train fares, giving petrol money to other comics who were driving to these gigs because I didn't get paid for the gigs yet. And and I'd be up at 6.15 the next morning, no matter where I'd been, you know, because I didn't even live near Chelsea. So I was I was really stretching myself. I take it you did try and get a job in the Arsenal store? No, you know what happened? It's really weird, right? I was, a, I was, um, I grew up quite religious actually and... I'm Jewish. And at our synagogue, I spent a lot of my life at the synagogue. I'd go on a Saturday morning to the service. I'd go with the family. On a Sunday morning, I would go to Hebrew classes. On a Sunday afternoon, I'd go to youth club. On a Tuesday evening, more Hebrew classes after school. Sometimes Thursday, Boy Scouts there. I mean, I was there a lot. And I went through the youth club and eventually started being one of the youth leaders at the synagogue by the time I was sort of 17, 18, 19. And that's what I was doing every week, you know, voluntarily helping run all the youth groups. And uh, there was a guy who had a a couple of kids who had come to our youth groups and I started to uh, babysit for them on a Saturday night. And he manufactured sporting merchandise, football merchandise, like those little mini kits that you get in the back of car windows. Mm -hmm. And I put an advert in the synagogue magazine Emet, it's called, which I think means to speak. I'm not sure in Hebrew. I'd have to look that up. An advert saying I was looking to be a babysitter, you know, to earn some money while I was studying for my GCSEs and A-levels. And I went to meet him and I babysat for his kids. 
And then he told me, oh, I've just got the franchise to run the shop at Chelsea. And I knew, my mum had said to me, you better get a job in your year off, you know, if you want to do comedy. And so I said to him, can I have a job in your shop? And he said, well, you're 18. You don't have any experience. How can I trust you? I said, well, you trust me with your kids. <laughs> and so he said, okay, all right. I think that's a pretty good argument. So I was hired to work in the shop. And, and that's how I got the job in the Chelsea shop. But I used to wear my Arsenal top underneath <laughs> my did. Chelsea top on a match day. <laughs> then there was the manager of the shop was uh, a Watford fan. The other assistant manager was a Leeds fan. And there was one boy who'd come in and work sometimes who was a Chelsea fan. And we used to take the mick out of him. <laughs> but Chelsea weren't that. They had three different managers that season, I think. They weren't great back then. Which, which era was that? Which era was that then? So this was the summer of 92 to the summer of 93. Okay, so it was the start of the end of the beginning of the Rue Toilet period would have been coming at the end of that, yeah. Yeah, but I'll tell you one last thing, that the guy who employed me in the shop, the guy I did the babysitting for, guess what his surname was? Bramovich. <laughs> no. Uh, Pollard. No. Yeah. Were the essences of Vicky at all in the family? No, not at all. Not remotely. No, no. 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 They're really nice. They're really nice. But, um, you know, you're a little magpie when you're a comedian, aren't you? And yeah. You're, you're seeing little tiny... Well, little... I was going to talk to you about that, about the audacity of, of youth in comedy, because I'm sure you try things when you're younger that perhaps as you get older, you, you think more and you wouldn't necessarily go near. I mean, you've talked about perhaps your comedy was crueler um, when you were younger. And obviously... There was a period after Black Lives Matter where some of Little Britain was taken off by certain streaming uh, platforms. Do you think you were cruel or were you just of the moment, of the time? I think empathy is something usually that sort of increases as you get older. And until you get really old and then you, you sort of... You go the you other go, way. You go the other way, yeah. <laughs> you go the other way. But um, I'm not at peak empathy yet, but I just feel like I'm more empathetic also i do think the culture of comedy is is very different now for the better i mean some in some ways yes in some ways no but i think generally I, i'm kind of pro woke really i think woke is it's sort of um seen as a oh woke this but actually i mean woke is about equality and empathy and fairness and all of those things and i i don't, I don't see those things as being bad things i think that that's, they feel like progress generally. Yes, you know, there's always examples of, of things not working the way they should. Not everything works perfectly all the time. But generally, I think that, um, I think it's a good thing. I read that you and David had sat down and talked about writing together again. I'm not sure if that's... Yeah, yeah, we do. We message each other virtually every day. I just wonder what, what your characters would be like now, how different they would be. Well, we have actually come up with an idea for a show. I think we've got two ideas for TV shows that I think are really, really strong. One is a bit like Come Fly With Me in terms of it's a particular environment where all our characters would exist. And the other is almost like how you do Little Britain if you were creating it today. And we like both of those ideas. I think the thing is we'd spent kind of... 20 years together non-stop really and, and 14 and 15 of those writing you know the two of us in a room together and so intense very intense and of course you know even a husband and wife when they need a bit of space there's a way of kind of going you know I'm going to take a bit of space when you're writing together and you go oh, actually we've just had a really intense period of work we've just done a gig and then but then the next morning you're up doing breakfast tv or something and you you it's a great privilege and a great honor and we're really lucky but there I think there are 
moments where we would have organically taken breaks from each other where we couldn't because of our schedules. So we had a period where we didn't really work together for a long time and we needed a bit of space really. So then I think it was important as we're reconnecting to sort of reconnect as friends without, you know, to say, well, let's just hang out as friends. Like we don't just have to sit and say, what are we going to work together on when we haven't seen each other for a while? So we've sort of had that period and it's been great. You know, I think the thing is that right now, David writes numerous books a year and also he is, I mean, this is personal to him, so I'm not going to go into any detail about this, but he's an amazing father. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's very close with his family. So, Well, that's the difference between you as younger men without those responsibilities. Exactly. So he, he has a child and obviously the child will, should, must, and rightly always comes first. And um, Do you ever feel that that's something you would want in your life? Yeah, maybe one day with, with the, you know, with the right alchemy. But um, what, what I was going to say was, you know, the thing about me and David is we don't just want to do something where we just turn up and sort of... Knock it out. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I don't think anything we do together is going to be as big as what we did before. But, but I think it needs to be better than what we did before, or at least as good. But for the two of us to sit down and write together, I'm not saying it would never happen. We really both want to do it. And we talk about it and we swap ideas and we talk. And it's just, it's the practical of challenge of being able to... Um, uh, you know, David has his books and he has Britain's Got Talent. And then, you know, he has his responsibilities mm. as a father and as a son and as a, a brother and all those things. You know, I'm very close with my family as well. I'm doing the Bake Off and mm. co-hosting, as you know, uh, this reboot of Fantasy Football League. And those two jobs together, I think, are about 10, 11 months of the year. And like David, although not not nearly with his degree of um, success, but I... I've just written my first short novel and I'm adapting it into a stage musical. So we both now have all these commitments, you see. But, but it's, not a, it's not a lack of desire. Just give us an idea then, because a lot of people listening won't have a clue kind of how long it takes to get a TV series kind of up and running. You did a really great sketch for Comic Relief. Something like that. How long would that take to write and to perform? Well, I think actually, I mean, that was probably nine or ten minutes worth of television time. Mm-hmm. I think we probably... If you added together all the days that we spent writing and rehearsing and rewriting and then having costume fittings and talking about makeup and then filming, that's probably 10 days of our lives. Yeah, for nine minutes. Stay with me. We'll be back after this. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So to present the Bake Off, you know, if you think of who you follow with Mel and Sue and Sandy mm. Toxvic, yeah, you're in that Venn diagram of kind of people who are clever, funny, warm, a little bit irreverent, oh, um, but national treasures. To present Bake Off, you have to be all of the above, don't you? And and that was when that phone call came in. Was there a bit of you that I don't know how good you are at reflecting? Think I must be okay if they're asking. You know, I must as a person, I've got the values. I don't know. It actually was a very strange series of events because I was doing this TV pilot in America for Fox and um, 
that was all going to happen. You know, and a really nice acting job on American TV. And I loved the script and it was a nice character and I was really excited. And then I got this call from my agent saying, please don't tell anybody because they keep everything under wraps, but they want to, uh, you to try out for Bake Off. And it's almost certainly going to be a woman. And they've only been seeing women so far because it used to be two women presenting and and then it was, uh, you know, Sandy and Noel and, and Sandy's decided not to do it anymore. They're going to replace her with a woman, we think. But Noel has asked whether you would try out. And so I said, oh, that's very nice. I'm, I must be honest with you, I haven't seen the Bake Off. And my was like, you haven't seen Bake Off? I said, well, I don't know. I've been living in America for seven years. And I haven't, um, I just tend to watch football on TV. I don't watch a lot of other things. And so she said, well... Would you do it? I said, no, I, I should probably watch it then, shouldn't I? So I watched the show, an episode of the show that night. And I thought, oh, this is really good, this. And then I watched, I put another episode on. I watched two. And then my agent called me on a Saturday. What do you think? I said, I think it's brilliant. What a brilliant show. <laughs> It'll go far. <laughs> yeah. Thank God, I can see why everyone loves it. It's, it's really good, isn't it? Um, but I don't want to be a T. I'm not a TV presenter. And anyway, I said I'd do this thing in America, you know, and it's a big part in a big new series and what have you. And she said, well, look, why don't you just go for the camera test? So I went to a garden center to test. And um, we told people in the garden center that we, I was doing a pilot for a show about uh, horticulture. So I was just sort of interviewing people and then people were asking me, well, what do you think about, you know, the, when you put the seeds in? And I go, I don't know. I don't know anything about gardening. They go, what are you doing this show for? <laughs> I said, I know. I said, yeah, well, yeah, times are hard. You know, I mean, I, I'm not here by choice. And, I, you know, so we were having fun. And because I, I don't even have any outside space in my house. Oh, I'm going to put a terrace in. If you're one of my neighbours and you hear that, I've just got planning permission. I do apologise. <laughs> I'll get Paul Hollywood to make some cake and I'll bring it round by way of apology. I'm sure that'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. So I was in the garden centre and, and I, I say this in the, in the nice way because I, I didn't really mind if I didn't, if I wasn't the host of the Bake Off just because I had this other job. I was quite free and easy and just sort of mucking about. So I just, I said, well, it's very nice, but I don't, I'm not a TV host. You've seen me on the TV. I don't, nobody wants to see that. I bet they couldn't believe how reticent you were to... Well, it was just, it was. It probably was a bit of lack of confidence, really. Yeah, but it's, it's a good technique, actually. Yeah, you but know. it was genuine. It was just like, it was more like, it wasn't, I mean, I loved the show, but it was more like, well, I, I was like, I don't want to turn on and see me on it. You know, you get someone who can do it properly. And anyway, in the afternoon, me and Noel got together. And I think it was the fifth or sixth person that he'd tested with. And um, me and Noel got together and we were just improvising and mucking about. And Noel told me, that he'd actually dreamt that I was his co-host. And then he'd suggested me. He just decided it was a good idea. So he actually dreamt that I got the job. But it's a good job I was good in the dream because if I'd yeah. not been very good in the dream, he, he, wouldn't, been have a night, <laughs> he wouldn't have called me. He'd have gone, oh, one person I'm not going to work with is Matt Lucas. I love that. I mean, uh, you know, it's a beautiful way to get a job, but it's a beautiful thing yeah. you've got on screen there. Yeah, and you know what? I will say this about working on Bake Off is the people who work on Bake Off, because... You know, because they've done so much of it, they're, you know, they, they get the same people coming back every year to work on it. So it really yeah, does feel like too. a family. Yeah, because if you were to work on Bake Off and you were a nightmare, you, they just won't ask you back no. next year. They don't have idiots. Well, I mean, you, you do have idiots, but you don't have them for long. The team that make Bake Off really know what they're doing. They're really nice. 
they're industrious. It's a good, it's a nice feeling. It's lovely when you get a job like that, isn't it? Yeah, and the bakers are great. The bakers are great. And it's, it's all about the bakers. I mean, listen, I am so, so, so lucky, right? So, I mean, I've found four great double act partners in my life. Four, mm, right? Williams, obviously. Uh, Noel Fielding. I have such fun with Noel on Bake Off. I've spent a lot of time in Les Miserables over the years. I play Tenardier and Madame Tenardier is usually played, if I'm in it, by um, Katie Seacombe, who is the daughter of Harry Seacombe. And oh, she wow. is absolutely brilliant. And we get on like a house on fire. And now I'm doing Fantasy Football League with Ellis James. And me and, and Ellis have... Oh, he's great. We have such yeah. fun together. So I've been so, so lucky. You see, I would say you're attracting good people. Your energy attracts good things. I think you just get better at it. So I think I, I've, you know, when I started out working with David, I was a bit of a sort of one man band, you know, and I needed mm. to learn how to work in a partnership, you know. But of course, Noel Fielding, it was in the Mighty Boosh with, with Julian Barrett. So you know sometimes how to work in, in a partnership. And Ellis James does these brilliant shows with John Robbins, yeah. which, um, you know, podcast lovers will know. And, and his five and, live show. Which and is his five live excellent. show, yeah. Mm. And so Ellis is used to being part of that dynamic of, okay, I'm going to get the laugh this time. Okay, now mm. it's your turn. Yeah. And uh, okay, actually, I'm just going to set you up because I know that you've got something. And so I really enjoy working in that dynamic, actually. We've talked about friendships changing and relationships changing on this podcast a lot as you get older, because you kind of naturally move on, I think, through life. If you have kids, you suddenly find yourself friendly with people who your kids hang out with or, yeah, yeah. If you, you know, you change jobs. And, and we talked about you and David kind of having a break and coming back together. Yeah. And you've mentioned there about how you've had four really good uh, or four double acts, if you like. And, and you've talked also about your housemates. I think Alfie Bowe's been a housemate and Rebel Wilson. Ramin Karim Lou lived in my house for a while. All sorts, yeah. So is that because you don't like living on your own or you just, you like sharing the bills? <laughs> actually, no, no. I actually, I think I have always enjoyed having people around, but I lived in California for seven years and that was my home really during that period. And then I bought a very, very, very small house house in London just for when I was here and I sold the place in California and so now I just live in the very very small house in London with two bedrooms and I live there on my own now. And do you feel like the time's right to live on your own? For me at this time it feels like the right the right thing to do but I have I see friends and people come over to the house but uh, I'm absolutely fine with that yeah. Um, the thought of living on my own is quite exciting, actually, just having your own space and just your own stuff to do. But I guess everybody's midlife experiences are so different depending on where you are in relationship status. Do you know what I mean? Like whether your kids are about to leave home, whether you've got yeah. small kids, whether you're in a marriage or not. And and I wonder as well how, you know, when you're not in a marriage at that stage of life, whether your expectancy of what you can do in life feels bigger somehow because you haven't got those different kind of beats in life like I'm looking forward to September the kids go back to school do you know what I mean well actually I do because because as long as I'm doing bake-off and fantasy football league then they are they're all completely set actually but where I go is I mean I just had I just had nine days off so I just went on my own to New York I saw three shows on Broadway I could choose a hotel I could choose oh I fancy going to this restaurant oh I fancy having a lie in. I could be spontaneous. I could just do what I wanted. 
So that is something really nice. And obviously when you're in a relationship, that's, you know, serious. And then you're, you know, you're not doing that because your partner's uncle's got a barbecue and you're going to that, aren't you? So, and that's fine. And you'll enjoy that and you'll have a great time, but I could do exactly what I wanted with it. Yeah. There's a bit of me that's thinking, oh, I can make different career decisions in a few years' time. Do you know what I mean? I can, I can say yes to certain things I never would have said yes to. I'm probably deluding myself that I'm going to get the offers. But I think um, there's kind of like this, almost like I'm looking on the horizon thinking, oh, there's a, bit of, there's a bit of a change coming. Do you feel like that at all with your age, that there's a change coming? Yeah, well, I've, I've started that for me to some extent because I've become like a host. Right. Because I, I hardly ever appeared out of character for the majority of my career. I didn't do things like this. I was much more private. And then if you saw me, you saw me as David or Vicky or... You never lifted the curtain, basically, did you? Rarely. Or if I did, it was on, you know, Jonathan Ross and I'm sort of joking around. Yeah, still performing. Whereas now I'm just much more relaxed about chatting to you like this, which I never would have done in the past. I don't take myself as seriously. And, you know, actually, for me, the big change there are a couple of things of, of career wise is that i'm hosting two tv shows and really enjoying it and they're very different you know bake off and football they're, that's two very different very different demographics <laughs> yeah yeah and um and i've written this short novel which is out next year and um i'm really proud of it has david read it no i mean i wouldn't bother him he's busy writing he's right now he's writing a book uh, as we speak so who would you trust with it then has you has your mum read it I don't know if she has I think if she's read this one I think she read the treatment uh, my brother actually my older brother he's my older brother's lovely he's read every draft of this novel and he's been very enthusiastic about it I'm, I'm really excited it's coming out in October of next year right and um I finished the third draft of the book so I have to you know you committed yeah but I said to David I said you know, I wrote it and I thought it was really good and they want me to do a second draft, but they want loads of notes. And, and then I and then I got the notes back after the second draft and there were lots of notes for the third draft. And I said, do you, do you have this where they just, the notes? And David said, sometimes I do 20 drafts of a book. No. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to shut up. <laughs> I'm not saying anything now. Oh, wow. That's a lot of work. How did you mentally find the process of writing? Because this is different to, a, to writing yes, autobiography, great. isn't it? Loved it. I've absolutely loved it. And I've really immersed. And, and actually, I was thinking of it as a complete one off. But I've had so much fun with these characters that I was actually, you know, I've actually got an idea for a, a second book with the same characters, which I'm, if anybody wants it, it might be that the, the book comes and goes. But um, I really, really enjoyed it. I know my time with you is is nearly up and I wish you all the success in the world with that. Thank the you. one thing we haven't touched upon, which I'd love to know about because a lot of people in midlife, you know, especially women have a lot of anxiety issues to do with hormones and, and things like that. How do you look after your mental health? Hmm. I try not to take myself too seriously and I try not to catastrophize too much you know if something's going wrong I try not to start worrying about all the things that are going to go wrong as a consequence of that going wrong because often they don't mm. and I remind myself that I think most people are essentially good because I think a lot of my anxiety comes from my addiction to reading newspapers and the newspapers will gravitate towards the the sort of more um 
I don't know if garish is the word, the, the more shocking stories. The worst case scenario, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I remember when Trump stopped being president, it was a huge relief that, and I'm sure it was for many journalists, that they know we, I just didn't really have to read about him anymore. You know, I didn't have to read about him anymore because he wasn't president anymore. So it just wasn't, he just didn't have that same platform. I mean, he's still, you know, he's still newsworthy, obviously. And, and I do believe he will be president again, actually. I believed it last time that he would be president. I was living in LA and I could see it. I could see it happening. And people thought I was mad. But I remind myself that people are essentially good. It's that thing, empathy again. We come back to mm. that at the end. That, that most people, not necessarily when they're in a big crowd, but most people, if they stop and think, they, they have some degree of empathy. And I remind myself that um, most situations don't spiral completely out of control. If something goes wrong, you usually have a few opportunities to put a plug in it, put a cork in it. Well, thank you so much for your wisdom and your wit and uh, your learnings. Uh, thank you. I don't know that I've shared much wisdom, but um, it's nice to get out of the house. This is <laughs> it's air conditioned in here. So let's um, celebrate that. Yeah. Thank you. It's nice to see you. Really lovely to see you. Good luck with with all the projects that you've got currently on the go as well with Thank uh, you. obviously fantasy football and Bake Off and the future book. Thank you very much. And good luck with your book. Thank you. Take care. Lots of love. Cheers. Bye-bye. Oh, I really love chatting to Matt and uh, getting a little bit beneath, I guess, those characters that he talked about that he spent most of his life playing. And when you think about it, actually, he doesn't do many interviews or hasn't done in the past where he is himself. And talking honestly, as he did, about why he was spurred into action to lose some weight and get in shape, which, of course, is understandable when you learn that his own dad died in his early 50s. And of course, presenting the Great British Bake Off, you really can't eat all the cake all the time, but by God, it must be tempting. And I really love his honesty about the evolving nature of a relationship like the one he has with David Williams. We all have those really long-term friendships and relationships through our life that perhaps not as high profile as that one, but they change, don't they, over time? And it doesn't mean that you can't grow apart for a while and then grow back together again. I really hope we see them working together soon. In the meantime, he is an excellent fantasy football host on Sky. Now, our expert today couldn't come on at the same time as Matt, so he's going to have to listen along with the rest of us to her advice on sleep, rest and performance. This is Sarah Gilchrist of Gilchrist Performance. Uh, so, Sarah, tell me, how, first of all, do you get into a position where you have Gilchrist Performance? What did you do to get to that stage? What did I do? I, I took a bit of a, a convoluted loop. My background's high performance sport. So I was a physiologist with the Sport Wales and the English Institute of Sport. So I was a senior physiologist with British Rowing from Beijing through to Rio. And during that time, I recognised that sleep wasn't really on the agenda in terms of focusing on it for performance. We talked about it, but only at surface level. The English Institute of Sport funded a doctorate, which I completed on sleep and athletic performance. And so now I've taken sleep and performance into the health sphere. What do you think, Sarah, is the biggest barrier or the biggest problem for people who can't sleep? Uh, it depends on your age, but certainly understanding that having a strategy for good sleep health is important. So if I said to you, have you got a strategy to get to sleep? Some people might consider it. I know certainly athletes would have done, particularly athletes I'd worked with because I'd talked to them about it. But most people in the general population will go, well, no, I just go to bed. 
and if I sleep, I sleep. If I don't, they don't consider it. And I often think of it as the the not so secret secret weapon. You know, everybody knows about sleep. It's no secret. We know we feel better if we sleep. We feel good if we sleep well. But the secret weapon to it is addressing it and having a regular routine and having that structure around your sleep and prioritizing it, valuing it. Particularly if you think about women and, and their hormone transitions through age, you know, female sleep is a huge area and one that I'm focusing on a lot at the moment because there's not enough about it. Not just menopause, that's obviously important, um, but the whole lifespan. So when you've got your strategy together, whatever that is, is that where you would go, right, OK, this is what your strategy should be? Because everybody's different, aren't they? What's the strategy for, you know... John might not work for Janice. Exactly. Sleep is totally individualised. And I think that when you talk about the barriers to good sleep, that's what a lot of people think. It's like, well, they can do it or my my partner does it, you know, but I can't do it. And it's like, it's what works for you, whether you're an owl or a lark. Most people are somewhere in between, but there are extremes. And then how you react to your sleep, how you react to poor sleep, it's entirely individualised and will change throughout your life. Particularly females, the, the difference between male and female sleep begins in puberty because of the female sex hormones come into play. Oestrogen and progesterone have a huge role to play in sleep and obviously a huge role to play with throughout the, the hormone transitions throughout a female's life. So those are the kind of the, the, where the differences start. It's just recognising that it's an individualised part of your life and valuing, protecting it. But if, if you live with somebody and you go to bed with them at night... That's quite tricky, isn't it? Because I, mean, I know my husband really likes us going to bed together at the same time. You know, we never leave one man standing downstairs. You know, no man's left behind. It's kind of like, right, bedtime now. And that's fine. I don't mind that. But I know some couples just don't want to go to bed at the same time. And that's where it could be quite tricky, can't it? Or one person likes to read with a miner's lamp on their head or something yeah. to try and, you know, not wake the other one up. Yeah, communication is key. Particularly difficult if you live with a shift worker as well. Yeah. Because then, you know, everybody's timetables are completely upside down. Most people, like I say, are somewhere in between, not an extreme owl and not an extreme lark. But if you are in that situation, it, it, you, you've got to talk about it because sleep is the problem. Priority. If you don't get good sleep, there's no physiological or psychological system. But what do you do? What can you do if, you know, if you are a shift worker and you don't have a spare bedroom? What, what can you do? Yeah, exactly. I think the spare bedroom would be key. If you don't have a spare bedroom, then it is right. OK, this is the shift I'm on. This is what I need to do in order to prioritise my sleep in the day. So it's things like notices on the door to stop the postman knocking on the door, the blackout blinds, the eye masks, phone out the bedroom. Hopefully the kids can, uh, you know, be quiet when they come home from school if you're in that situation. And and the communication, I think shift work in particular becomes a lifestyle. It's not a, just the job, it's the lifestyle for the whole family. I mean, I only did about two days filling in on Five Live Breakfast a few months ago. <laughs> and honestly, my kids were already taking the mickey out of me because at five o'clock I was going, right, everybody, we're having dinner at five and yeah. I'm going to bed at eight and yeah. and I, I take my hat off to people who can sustain family life and work shifts but most people listening to this a lot of people listening to this are in midlife right and we know the hormonal changes happen and if you're not going to seek out kind of hormone replacement or anything like that to try and uh, kind of alleviate any of those symptoms what can people take away today Sarah from you that they can make a difference 
to make a difference to their sleep, in particular going through the, the hormone transitions, it's recognising what's waking you up. Is it the hot flushes, things like the chill pillow, the chillo? The main idea is to get back to sleep as quickly as possible. So address what's woken mm-hmm. you up. It's entirely normal to wake up and go to the loo a couple of times a night. But obviously during perimenopause, menopause, some of those aspects that you're going to experience, whether it's the hot flushes, the night sweats, anxiety, depression, seeking interventions to help with that cognitive behaviour therapy for insomnia is proven to be really useful, particularly during perimenopause, menopause, anxiety, depression, insomnia. So there's lots of relaxation techniques, gentle psychological techniques, practical solutions, getting the body temperature down again, because you need the body temperature has a circadian rhythm in the same way we do for sleep. And we need our body temperature to be cool to sleep. So a cool, calm environment to sleep in the right pyjamas, good cotton, you know, bed sheets, spare bed sheets. Don't put all the lights on and get yourself into a stressful situation. You can't get back to sleep. So those are some of the headlines. And and obviously there's individual things that you can do to seek advice from your GP for HRT, for example. But that's that's a good thing to remember about the, the core body temperature, isn't it? I think, I mean, I often have a cold shower before I go to bed at night, actually. I know that's the opposite to kind of the hot, warm, relaxing bath, but that just, especially in summertime, just lowers my kind of core temperature and I just feel much more ready to sleep bizarrely and also this time of year I've heard a lot of people in the last few weeks in fact one of them was an Olympic gold medal winner saying I just can't exercise in August because the kids are you know at home and I'm not in a routine and and people get totally out of a rhythm I think and in the summer months suddenly you're up you know drinking a gin and tonic at 10 o'clock at night or you're you know you're entertaining somebody you're not having to get up at six o'clock to get the kids ready for school and then it comes as a really rude shock <laughs> on September the 4th or 5th whatever when you've suddenly got to get back into that so what's your advice on that one I would start tapering into the new term um would be my advice Taper. So it's not, yeah I mean from my athletic background but yeah taper into it and keep an element of routine I mean of course you know our, our bodies love routine you know we're physiological beings we love routine we're based on routine that's how our bodies function um but of course we like to relax that and the summer's a natural time to do it particularly if you've got a family and, and the demands of school have gone for example and I think if you know to use the sporting al- analogy you know we adaptation needs recovery but certainly also moving into the winter months that the bedtime the routine they're having a regular get to bedtime and a regular get up time is key to getting the right amount of sleep which again is individualized seven to nine hours pretty much for a healthy individual and the only way to really assess that is if you wake up with your alarm a bit groggy but you're awake and feel refreshed alert and fully productive during the working day if not chances are you probably need to address that sleep strategy a little bit more yeah, I love having no alarm and worked out actually that it's almost bang on seven and a half hours for me. When Whatever time I go to bed, between say kind of 11 and midnight, seven and a half hours later I'm awake. So that's obviously what I need, isn't it? I can't force myself to have any more. So yeah, but those alarms are looming. So I've got to get myself into a slightly earlier bedtime, I think, like a lot of us do. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today and uh, for sharing your wisdom on on sleep and all things related to performance, because of course, sleep is directly linked to our performance in everything we do. So um, take care and best of luck helping all those athletes in the future. Many thanks, Debbie. Thanks so much to Sarah for popping on. I think we all know that we're better in every department of life when we get good sleep and quality rest. I'll tell you what my non-negotiables are. A firm pillow, magnesium, not too much caffeine after midday, and a cool room. 
Also, increasingly as I get older, eating late and exercising late seem to affect the quality of my sleep. Oh, also, but hopefully this won't affect you because you won't be sleeping with him. My husband Kenny snoring is not great. But a little gentle poke in the back seems to sort that out. Uh, do share your tips though with us on the Midpoint Facebook page if you have any. And uh, I'm sure you've got plenty to share and people will appreciate that. Thank you to Sarah then for her tips. And uh, thank you so much to Matt Lucas, uh, of course, for coming on and chatting with us so candidly. Uh, by the way, Sarah's website is Gilchrist Performance if you want more information from her and thank you for listening and lauren armstrong carter for producing i'll see you next time hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.